0: Captain Hunter Coming at you again. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Captain Hunters Podcast, a podcast that is dedicated towards bridging the divide between the police and the communities that they serve. Thank you so much. Really, really appreciate your love and your support. Hey, listen, do me a favor before we go on, make sure that you hit that like and subscribe button. Make sure you smash it down a couple of times. Make sure you tell your friends, your neighbors, your co workers about what we got going on over here at Captain Hunters Podcast. Uh, I was on a little bit of a hiatus for a little bit. I uh, had to take care of some things, went on some vacations. Um, Um, and just kind of made a summer extended uh, vacation a little bit longer and here it is November so I hope everybody's uh, fall is going well so far and I'm going to be releasing a few episodes uh, that uh, I had backed up or had in the can and I'm also starting to reach out again to new up to uh, new um Prospective uh, uh interviewees so if you know anyone or have anyone that's that you'd like to have interviewed or think we would have a great conversation make sure you send them over to me cptlhunter at gmail.com etc etc and all that kind of good stuff so but, but please in the meantime make sure that you hit that uh, like button subscribe and share these episodes make sure that you do that um today we got an episode for you today Good episode. Uh, If you if you heard my episode with Tracy Harris, if you heard my episode with um, uh, uh, Ricky Green uh, concerning um, why people believe uh, um, uh, false ideas and bad things and bad information and things along those lines. Um, this is going to be the same, same line of, of people, uh, all in the same circle there. So we're going to talk about mental illness and the effects that poverty has on mental illness. Really, really good episode. I think that's coming here today. So a lot of times we think that, um, and I don't mean to be very flippant about this, uh, but a lot of times we think that, you know, maybe suicide is something that happens to maybe the upper class because of, um, you know, they, they can't deal with the stress of going to work or, or whatever, but there's, there's some connections to uh, mental illness uh, in poverty and all that kind of thing you know, mental illness and poverty and, and affecting uh, you know suicide rates so we're going to talk about that so I uh, had the, the professor Rob Poole who's on from uh, as you can tell by his accent, he's over there in Wales he's over there on the other side of the pond uh, in England and um, so he's uh, j- was agreed to come on the show and we're going to talk about his work and research uh, with in South uh, East uh, Asia and the poverty that goes on there and there. Uh, Attempts to alleviate the poverty, alleviate the problem of poverty, by committing suicide. Um, So, for those of us here in America, those of us who think that these problems are, you know, he's, this, let me just start off here. Those of us who think that these are problems or issues, uh, uh, again, that are first world type of issues, that only uh, higher uh, income nations uh, may deal with these types of things, is not the case. Second problem is is that mental illness strikes us all, no matter what age, r- race, a socioeconomic background, et cetera, et cetera. It strikes us all, and um, we all need to look at it at this and really make the proper adjustments that we can in order to help our female, fellow human beings out. Uh, Professor Rob Pool. Um, I'm going to read a little bit of of his biography. Um, uh, so he's, uh, he's an academic psychiatrist. He was a full-time clinician. Uh, he held posts as a, a consultant in Liverpool in North Wales for 21 years. Uh, he was trained at uh, St. George hospital in London and in Oxford. Uh, his interests, uh, are on center, uh, center on, uh, clinical skills and issues of clinical importance that affect deprived and marginalized people. I, I really, uh, credit him for doing that. um. I think that we really have a great, great conversation here, and um, one thing that he, uh, that I really wanted to get to is that he and a co-worker his, Catherine Robinson, has been working on self-harm and suicide with colleagues uh, in India for some years, so I think that his work in uh, with uh, marginalized people and the suicide rates is really, really something for us to discuss and really for us to look at. We have a problem here within the United States that is a growing problem uh, with our uh, financial crisis our economic uh, situation and that is homelessness almost all the state of California I was on the West Coast in a couple of uh, cities uh, in uh, Washington growing problem Seattle uh, all across the United States homelessness is a problem we're going to start seeing these problems continue to exacerbate and get worse and get worse if we don't step in and do something about these about these issues so uh, without further ado ladies and gentlemen we're going to talk about how suicide rates uh, affect marginalized peoples we're gonna have a great conversation very good well thank you so much uh professor rob pool right is that how you refer to yourself as professor rob pool uh that's the gen that's the convention in the uk okay <laughs> okay well thanks for so much for coming on captain hunter's podcast really really appreciate it and uh, really really been looking forward to this conversation i think we have a lot of interesting things to to discuss Uh So if you would just take a moment here and just kind of introduce introduce yourself to the audience there, please. Okay,
1: so um
0: yeah, I'm Rob Poole. Um
1: I'm professor of social psychiatry at Bangor University in, in North Wales. Um I've been a psychiatrist for a long time, um 40, 40 years this year. Um and I've been um for most of my career I was a, a clinical psychiatrist working in central Liverpool. Um, you've probably heard of Liverpool yeah, uh, yes. there was there was a beat combo in the 1960s that came from Liverpool. Liverpool is, uh, was, is, it was an important or uh, well, still is an important port in the UK but is very is, has had a big problems big problems with poverty and um, loss of industries. So I worked in it in, in, in inner city areas setting up all kinds of services. And then gradually, as I got older, moved more into academic psychiatry. So my whole career has been uh, um, about um, uh, about the, the welfare of marginalised and deprived populations, firstly in providing services, and more recently in doing research of relevance to those groups. My current um, main research areas of research are I am... Um, a leading part of something called SASHI, the South Asia Self-Harm Initiative, which um, is funded by the British uh, Medical Research Council and um, is about setting up um, suicide surveillance and developing suicide prevention strategies in in South Asia, which is an area with very high suicide rates. I also do work about um, prescribed opioids in the UK, a slightly different situ- uh, situation in the UK to, to the US. Um, and I have a range of other interests, mainly concerned with the social determinants of mental health.
0: Very good. Thank you so much for that. Um, what, did you always want to be a psychiatrist when you were a young guy in school? Or, and just what made you get into this line of work? No, I,
1: I think that the first inspiration for me was Yuri Gagarin. You know, um, I think I probably was interested in space ahead of everything else. And my, my big enthusiasm at school was actually physics. Um, but I hit upon the idea of, of, of going to um, medical school, which wasn't easy. I was the first person in my family to go to university as many of my generation were. But I eventually got a place at uh, 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 at St. George's, and it wasn't what I expected. Um, You know, I had some misconceptions about what medicine might be, and I think I I was surprised about uh, to meet some people with some very, what I saw as some very backward social attitudes, some some people who are far from role models. I really wondered for quite a long time whether it was a place, really a place in medicine for me, and then as a medical student, I I had a, a, a quite a long attachment in psychiatry and thought, oh, I can do this. This is great. And it, so it was a kind of like a damaskin moment. I suddenly realized that this is what I had to do with my life. And that's what I have done with my life. Um, with no plans to pack up at the moment. No, oh, good.
0: Advancing years. <laughs> good, good, good. Um, so tell us a little bit about the South uh, the South Asia. South Asia? Yeah.
1: Self-harming initiative. Yeah. <laughs>
0: okay. So um, well,
1: just briefly, the story is that um, I, a friend of mine and a, a colleague who once been someone I taught um, called Murli Krishna, who had worked, uh, trained and worked in Liverpool and then later in North Wales with me, went back to um, Mysore in South India and invited me to go and speak with a, with a colleague, go and speak at, at, a, at a conference that was being held in Mysore. Um, I'm not a great traveller, actually. I've never been very interested in travelling. But I went to India to to, to speak at the conference. And while I was there, um, I was asked to help um, give some advice about setting up a a self-harm register. In other words, a a register in the hospital, uh, in in, in medical college, the main medical college in in, in Mysore, um, so that they could develop some basic surveillance of who was coming in with self-harm. Self-harm is a very, very big issue in, in, in India. The rates in South um, India and in Karnataka, which is what the state where Mysore is, um, the rates, population rate is about five times the UK rate. Um, and it's a big, big problem and, um, and and it affects everyone. Everyone knows someone who's, who's taken their own life. So there's been great concern about doing something about it, but they lack the kind of surveillance systems that tell you what um, is likely to help in in preventing suicide. And we know from what research has been done previously, and there is some good quality research that's been done recently, uh, previously. We we know that um, there are differences um, in suicide, patterns of suicide, who's affected the kind of factors that lead people to take their own lives and and, and the way that people take their own lives In, in India and other countries, compared with the place where most of the research is done, which is the UK, the USA, Europe, Australasia, um, high income countries. So um, basically we, we, we did set up this self-harm this register. I ended up going back and going back. And now I've been to South India 25 or 30 times. Um, and we got some, we began to get some research grants in to do some research on it. And, and then eventually we, we, we rather, as we thought rather audaciously, um, made an application for quite a large amount of grant um, from one of our UK medical, or from one of the funds run by the UK Research Councils. And to our delight, we got it. Um, so we've got a, a collaboration. It involves partners in Pakistan, partners in um, India, partners in Sri Lanka. Um, and it's we, we collaborate Bangor University, Manchester University, Oxford University, Edinburgh University, um, Durham University. Um, so this is quite a large uh, research group. Now what we're doing with this is uh, is is we're building research capacity. so we're, we're we're trying to make it more possible to do sustainable research in in, um, in these countries, and it isn't, they have got already got a research infrastructure, but much of their research is is focused on more biological aspects of mental illness, and, and we bring expertise with the more social, um, aspects of, of, of mental illness and the methods with expertise and the methods that are have not widely been used. They have been used, but not widely used in those parts of the world. Um, and it's very much about partnership. That, uh, it's, we're not going you know, on a kind of philanthropic basis. The, uh, we're working closely with with partners in each of the countries who are as equal partners. Uh, and we, we get something back from it and they get something back from it. And, and of course, it, what we learn in, in uh, South Asia is directly applicable to to suicide prevention in the UK, partially because we've got large uh, minority populations with South Asian heritage here, but not just because of that. Because we, we learn other things um, from from doing work in, in in another with people from another culture. So so we have a, a, we've set up a large surveillance system, uh, which is about to which is actually collecting data despite. current pandemic and the difficulties that has caused we've got work uh, synthesizing all kinds of research that's already been been, been conducted and understanding um, what the literature really tells existing literature tells us we've been doing work um, around the media media depictions of um, of suicide which we know has an impact on ultimately on suicide rates Um, so for example if we think of a a celebrity suicide in in, in the United States, um, uh, say um, Robin Williams, um, that 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 then is followed by a, a, a bulge um, in in suicides in the population, and and that's in turn is affected by how that's reported. Um, in particular, uh, graphic depictions of what the person actually did are known to be associated with. People following suit, so you have to be very careful with that kind of stuff. Um, and so we're doing that kind of work in in India. There's quite a lot about um, the stakeholders uh, uh, and, and trying to uh, um, work out how to translate um, suicide prevention policy into action. Um, there's a whole range of of stuff we're doing out there. My my part of it is very much about surveillance and and, and collecting in a very rigorous way uh, information about who survives um suicide attempts um and and to understand what could be done to, to prevent recurrence and, and,
0: and to stop it happening in the first place yeah there's so much there's so much that you that you talked about right there um so let, let's tra- i'll try to take it from this from the top here so um according to the notes that i took you talked about these the different factors high income countries uh have less uh, suicide rates than the lower f- factories uh, a fact- lower income countries. Therefore, these are obviously that's a determinant factor, right? The poverty rates and all that. Can you talk about a little bit about that? Okay. So
1: um, in general, in health, um, nearly everything that can go wrong with your body or your life has got similar social determinants. So it is, it, you know, if you want to be well, you really should avoid being born poor. Can you speak? I hope the audience gets that. Hey, listen, just stop being born poor. <laughs> it, it, it's really not good for your health. Um, but it isn't good for anything else either. So, so, so um, basically, disadvantage and inequality uh, bear down multiply on people. So, so everything um, uh, that can go wrong in your life tends, tends to be associated with being at the bottom end of the pile. Now, in a sense, that isn't surprising. But, but it's surprising to know that, that people haven't always thought that was true. There was, there was a time in the 1950s when heart attacks were thought to be associated with executives in, in businesses. Well, heart attacks are much commoner in, uh, in poor people, actually. Everything is commoner in poor people. Um, and, and even to the point where even doing something that's bad for your health is less bad for, for you if you've got more money. So you know, there's there's cigarette for cigarette. The effect of smoking on your health is less severe if you're wealthier than if you're poorer. So so this is a really big effect. Um, And as has been pointed out by important researchers in this area, like um, there's a there's a a very important global um, figure in in health inequalities called called Michael Marmot, Professor Sir Michael Marmot, who works in London in in the UK. who has pointed out that the, 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 the there's a gradient effect. So the effect of inequality goes all the way up to the top. So at every level, your health is worse than the person, people are higher up than you. Uh, and the more equal society is the more, the less health problems there are in totality. Um, so more equal societies tend to have better health that the, the, the commonly uh, cited example being Sweden. Now, um, in most countries, poverty is associated with with closely associated with, with higher suicide rates, but also living in the countryside. So this is one of the few things where it's it's worse for your health to be in the countryside than in the city. Um, but suicide is one of them. So people in 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 the in, 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 in rural situations tend to have higher suicide rates than in um, than in urban situations. It, there's also a factor of culture here. So we know that some societies have higher suicide rates than others. And that isn't a nece- necessarily a simple kind of algebraic equation about how, how much poverty there is or how, how wealthy the country is. In fact, some, some relatively lower income countries have got better suicide rates than some higher ones. So um, the, the case in point being the USA, which has got rather a high uh, suicide rate by the standards in most high income countries. The main factor in that is, is possession of firearms. Mm. So the, the fact that people've got the means to very reliably um, kill themselves I- around the house, it translates into um, into higher death rates. so there's, there's there's that kind of factor and then there's more stri- more complex cultural factors. So um, Japan historic, so historically has had higher suicide rates than other countries. Actually, Sweden as a very equal country has tended to have high suicide rates. Uh, So there are other uh, cultural factors that that, that play against this, but it isn't fixed for all time. So to about 1990, uh, China had suicide rates very similar to the suicide rates in in India. Now that's dropped dramatically. Uh, It's really dramatically dropped, it's more than halved um, over the last 30 years. We're not exactly sure why, because it certainly isn't associated with a very major and concerted attempt to to prevent suicide. We believe it's probably about the rate of economic development there, and it's probably related to the rate of urbanisation. So as the large part of the population has moved off out of the countryside and into the cities, that may have been a major factor. So it's not, these things aren't immutable. Uh, They do change over time.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, i guess uh, i guess like you said the answer is just stop being born poor and uh get out of the countryside or or whatever <laughs> well no, i think
1: no i think there are some solutions i think i think there are some important solutions okay um i think um one is restricting access to means of, of, of taking your life so we, we we know that over a wide range of um, measures that if you restrict access to means you, the suicide rate reduces. Now, you might think that people would simply find some other way of taking their own lives, but that isn't what happens, in fact. So, catalytic converters have had an impact. The introduction of catalytic converters with less carbon mon- monoxide in the fumes has made it more difficult to kill yourself using car fumes. Mm. So, and, and the suicide rate drops when you introduce catalytic converters. Um, when in the UK when coal gas, which also contained a lot of carbon monoxide, was um, phased out in place of natural gas, as it, as it was called, uh, the suicide rate dropped because people had, before that had, had commonly gassed themselves. So, um, so, so we do know that, 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 that that's reducing access to means makes a difference. Uh, we know that when unemployment is high, the suicide rate goes up. Mm. And when the un- unemployment comes down, the suicide rate goes down. Mm. Now, unemployment isn't an act of God. Uh, no. Unemployment no. rates can be controlled. I mean, in, in the U- in the USA, um, Roosevelt in the 1930s brought, brought unemployment down quite sharply uh, as, as an act of, of, of economic policy in the New Deal. Um, and that kind of factor can make a big difference. So there are actually public health measures that can be taken that will reduce suicide rates. And... Um, and, and, and sometimes they, they, they you can see quite a sustained reduction in suicide rates in fact in the uk until to, uh, in 2007 we had the historically lowest rate that we'd ever had in the uk but then we hit, we hit the financial crisis economic times got 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 bad and the rate went up mm. so it isn't it isn't a council of despair at all there are things you can do uh,
0: well well that's that's at least good news when you talked about um uh, you know the, the wealthier that people are uh, then the healthier that they are. Um, I, I can remember just a little bit about me my audience has probably heard this before, but I actually had a triple bypass a number of years ago um, almost three years ago now. And so um, so I went to the doctor and he, the doctor's telling me that uh, you know um, you know clogged arteries in, in one's heart are not the result of McDonald's. Uh, but they are the result. But but people have just been struggling with this, and we don't know why for years. And then he quotes to me, you know, a study that was done uh, where uh, some, you know, Egyptologists, archaeologists, whatever, had studied the the remains of mummies. You know, they did the the uh, CAT scans of mummies, and they can see the the clogged arteries in their hearts. Well, it turns out I actually actually looked up that study, <laughs> and. What he didn't tell me was that, uh, you know, people who were mummified in the first place were rich people. And so, uh, you know, it wasn't just the regular people. You had to have money to, in order to be mummified. And so if you had money, then you also had a different diet and their diets consisted of, of animals and ducks, particularly of ducks and geese, uh, which are higher in fat than chicken and whatever, because, you know, that's what they float, you know, how they float on water and all that kind of stuff. So, so in my mind, being wealthier, you have access to higher, more detrimental types of food, and so I'm just I'm just kind of pointing. No, this no, out
1: that it's that a very reasonable point that you, yeah. that you raise, and diet that does affect yeah. um, uh, um, uh, coronary artery disease, as do a number of other factors, including genetics. I mean, genetics are not irrelevant. If you've got a strong family history, it's it's it, you know you're more likely to get this this problem i just say about the Egyptian study, well, there's another point about, about ancient Egypt, which is that if you were wealthy, you lived longer and had more opportunity to develop coronary artery disease. Oh, well. So, so <laughs> you know, if, if, if most people are kind of dying in, the, in their 30s, yeah. their opportunity to develop coronary artery disease is much less. So you've got to bear in that, that, that factor in, in mind as well. These were probably relatively old people by the standards of ancient Egypt. Yeah. Um, the... And it, and it is true that all diseases, anyone can get them. The question is, who does get them? Who gets them most? Mm-hmm. Where, where are the highest prevalences? Now, there's some funny things. Well, not, not funny, but funny as in strange. So if we look at um, the UK, the, the overall um, um, uh, level of, in, of, of, of income is higher. Um, the effect of eating bad diets is particularly seen amongst the poorest group. We, we have developed an obesity problems like the, um, the U S obesity problem where obesity is. Associated. Well, congratulations. Yeah. Well, great.
0: You know,
1: well, where you go, we follow, unfortunately. Uh, um, the, um, um and 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 that of course then means that the already high rates of coronary artery disease get higher because you then see diabetes kicking in and diabetes associated with coronary artery disease plus people who are poorer smoke more mm. um interestingly poorer people don't drink more alcohol at least in the uk they don't in in in, in the uk poorer people tend to drink less alcohol mm. but there's a higher rate of very of very very heavy drinking amongst poorer people so there's you if you're poor you're more likely to be abstinent but you're also more likely to be very heavy drinking so mm. overall it's lower but anyway um and these factors all, all, all act on each other in in countries where dietary habits change because the overall income is increasing you see changes in in in, in, in heart disease patterns mm. um but but there's some things that are really strange here so it from the european and us uh, data you would think that diabetes was pretty much closely tied um, to, to your overall level of obesity. You know, um, I, I've lost a lot of weight during the pandemic, but I, I used to go to my GP and he'd say, well, your blood sugar is a bit high. And I would say, well, you're telling me I'm fat. the <laughs> one goes with the other, you can tell that by looking at me, I need to lose weight. <laughs> you know, you'd have to do a blood test. Um, but actually, some interesting things are emerging in India. So in India... There's not a close association between obesity and, um, and, and 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 diabetes. It's it's not it's not anything like as close. So lots and lots of thin people get diabetes yeah.
0: in,
1: in India, but of course there is still an association between diabetes and being relatively poor. Mm. And so there's a the, the, whatever these links are, they're not quite as mechanistic as one might think. You know, j- j- there are complex complex mixtures of total lifestyle, stress, different types of stress bearing down upon people.
0: So we talked about, um, uh, in a previous conversation you and I had, we talked about um, the the biological versus the social aspect of particularly of suicide rates yeah and um, people uh, correct me if I'm wrong but people back in the days by people I mean uh, researchers academics back in the days were pushing the biological aspect of it and now it's more and you and and a number of other people are pushing the sociological aspects of this so very yeah I mean very few suicide researchers
1: would see suicide as predominantly a biological phenomenon, at least these days. There is a very strong, I mean, in, in, in America, USA does an awful, a very large proportion of all the, all the research, medical research in the world and funds an awful lot of it. And, and America is, is more than normally prone to, 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 to big sweeping changes in the way they understand things. So um, when I was a medical student back in the 1970s, um, there was still a very, very notoriously a very, very strong psychoanalytic theme in, in American psychiatry. This all changed radically, and, and, and the milestone was really the publication of dsm 3 in 1980, and everything moved towards the biological, end, ending up in the, with the 1990s being declared the, the, the decade of the of the brain. Mm. Um, huge hope that we would develop these biological treatments. Unfortunately, they haven't actually. We haven't got new treatments. It, it, that that hope was was somewhat dashed. So in, in America, things swing backwards and forwards. In a, in, a, in a lot of other countries, it isn't quite as as, as as dramatic as that. But certainly, in terms of firstly, in terms of um, suicide, there is compelling evidence that the major um, factors that um, influence. Uh, suicide rates are economic, social factors rather than anything uh, biological. Sometimes people have thought that maybe um, air pollution might affect rates in, in poor, in poor parts of, 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 of the country, but it seems probably not. Actually, I mean, air pollution isn't good for you; it has a health, it has a health impact, but maybe not so much on your mental health. Um, not all suicide is related to poor mental health. So it, 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 all studies show a proportion of people uh, who take their own lives are not suffering from a mental health problem um, as we, one would normally understand it. And in fact, in, 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 um, in the Indian literature, uh, it appears to be a minority of people who take their, their own lives are, are suffering from a, a, a diagnosable mental health problem. But mental health problems themselves have got important um, social causes so it, it, again it, in the 1980s in fact quite recently people argued that, that, that the substantial causes of um, schizophrenia um, were um, probably genetic um, now there is no question that there are that, that, that there is a gen- genetic factor in most things that happen to people and, and mentally illness is no different in that but actually the, there is very compelling evidence now. Some of it that has developed out of, uh, it was being developed by actually genetic researchers um, that shows that there are two big factors in the UK, just taking the UK data, that influence your, your chances of developing um, a, 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 or being diagnosed with, with schizophrenia in adulthood. One is growing up poor in a in city area. And that's that's it's called urbanicity it's a major factor um the other factor is being is growing up black british that is to say generally speaking but with parents with caribbean Heritage, because that's, that's, that's how ethnicity tends to run in the UK. Now, the interesting thing about that is that that fact, that, firstly, that factor is separate from the factor about growing up in inner city areas. So you can factor those two out. They, they operate independently of each other. Second thing about it is that the, the parental generation that, 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 that immigrated to the UK, so people who grew up in the Caribbean and came to the UK as adults or as young people, did not have a raised rate of schizophrenia. In fact, if anything, they had a lower rate of schizophrenia than the, than, than the rest of the population in the UK. But their offspring who grow up here, which make, which is highly suggestive, I mean, really very highly suggestive, that the key factor was growing up in a society where you faced pretty systematic obstructions to getting on basically institutional and explicit racism. So here we have got two major... Um, Social factors, growing up in an inner city area, and growing up British Black, which are known to have to confer a considerably higher risk of developing schizophrenia or being diagnosed as having schizophrenia in adulthood. Um, this isn't this isn't to suggest that the, that the genetics have got nothing to do with it, and and the two sets of evidence don't quite make sense together. They don't quite sit together, but that's probably about the way we understand these things interacting more than anything else. But the fact is, in terms of things that we can do to modify kids being at risk of developing um, psychotic illnesses as adults, then we can do something about inner city poverty, and we can do something about racism. Genetics, that might be a lot more difficult to change.
0: People often, at least I don't, maybe it's just my own particular circles. I mean, I think I would think that the, the, the racism that has existed, and, and let me just say that I think that it's, the U S is doing a much better job today, but the, but the racism that has existed, you know, people have always been aware of that, but I, a lot of people are not aware of the racism that exists in Britain. Um, would you say it's just as bad or was just as bad?
1: Well of course it 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 has a, it has a different cultural connotation but i think so i mean you know i i, I was lucky i came from a a kind of left leaning family that regarded itself as strongly anti racist and and i was and so i was very aware that i was surrounded by people who were constantly making racist jibes Using racist words, we had awful, awful television programmes in the nineteen seventies in this country that were, frankly, where, where, where the comedy was racist. It was straightforward racist. Um, I, it's funny. I, it, this, this, this coming Easter weekend is the fortieth anniversary of the Brixton riots, which were related to um, oppressive policing. In Brixton, an area of London, I was living very close by at the time, and I actually witnessed the, Brixton, the first Brixton riot, um, uh, and, and 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 it was awful. And the experience that people, that, that black people had at the hands of the British police was, was absolutely awful. Now, I think as bad. Well, I'm a white guy, so I, I I've never had an experience of of, of of racism, and I don't know of 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 being of subject being subjected to racism, and. Um, I don't know if you can quantify the effects of growing up under racism. I mean, all while, you know, I also grew up with lots of images from the civil rights movement, you know, the, all, all the stuff about the freedom riders and all the, the, the kind of images of lynchings, even in the 1950s, and then even more recently stuff. And, you know, it just, it, it looks very shocking and very, very violent, but it's kind of slightly alien to us. And so that may be, may, may give it a twist for my not affected by racism eyes. I, I think if you grow up with racism, you grow up with racism. Now it's, it's topical at the moment, isn't it? We, we, as we speak, it's the day after the, the, um, the Meghan Markle interview was, was broadcast in the UK um, and talking about racism in the Royal Family, which has caused quite a high degree of horror
0: um, here, as I'm sure it has in the US. Uh, okay, uh, so I'm not familiar with that. She did an interview, and uh, she said that there was she experiencing racism in the royal family. Oh yeah. Oh, I got to go watch that interview. I did not know that. <laughs> I yeah, not. yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> I, it, 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 I suppose it would be a bigger deal here. She, uh, the, the, some of the, some of it is really quite. I, 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 I'm no fan of the royal family, but um, it was. It, it's pretty shocking. It's pretty shocking what she said. Um, it's it's. Uh, including, well, you, you, you go see it. I mean, it's it's it, it's not good. Um, uh, okay, I'm going to look. at it. <laughs> I did not know. Uh, what, what... Oprah, it was an interview with Oprah Winfrey, so you know, it wasn't a UK interview.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I I I know that she. I know that they left the royal family or whatever. I don't even know what they're doing. Whatever they're doing, they're taking time off or taking a break or something like that. Moving over here and uh, and you know, but I did not know that she was. Experiencing intolerance in her own in the new family. I didn't know that. But, but I think I mean, in a broader sense,
1: um, you know, the British it, it, the British had a, had a, had the key role in in, in slavery, well, yeah, uh, yeah. In, in developing a, a pseudo scientific uh, concept of race and inferiority. Um, the British Empire, which which even now our government encourages us to be proud of. Well, if you spend time in, in countries that were British colonies, it, it isn't very pretty. And anyone who knows very much about the history of the British in India um, knows that some really, really awful things happened, including not, maybe not in my lifetime, but certainly in the lifetime of my, my parents and, and my grandparents, there was an awful massacre of, um, of, of, of Indian civilians, unarmed Indian civilians in, in Amaritsa, in 1919, um, I was in India on the um, 70th anniversary of independence um, and sat and listened to some speeches, and, 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 and you know, it, it made you quite, made me feel quite uncomfortable about, about being British. People just described the, the, the manner in which the British had had left and the mess they left behind. Uh, so I think the idea that the the, the the British Britain is somewhere where it just racism plays out different, you know. I, I, so when when black um, US um, servicemen came over here during the Second World War, they were treated much better um, than they, they were used to being treated in some parts of the United States. But but that doesn't mean there wasn't racism. Yeah, it, yeah, it, I've, we're, I've heard but that. We just try to do stuff politely here, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well i i guess that's good in a sense i mean listen here uh uh they you know uh, they were lynching us and you know they're being nice about it you know uh malcolm x used to say uh uh what in the north they were political foxes and in the south being you know the south of the united states uh they were just outright wolves so <laughs> which one pick your poison you know kind of yeah, yeah yeah so yeah um, what's, what's the answer? You, we talked a little bit about getting ra- rid of racism. These are really, as far as dealing with these poverty issues, right? These poverty issues are causing schizophrenia, causing suicide. We talked about getting rid of, of, of racism, doing something that we can do. We can't do anything about genetics, as you said, but, uh, and maybe the genetics is just, maybe the poverty and other racist, uh, incidents and acts are just unlocking the genetics, you know, however, you know, psychology goes there. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so, so what? How do we really get rid of this? I mean, is racism going anywhere? I, you know, I, 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 would like to be optimistic, but I, I'm not very.
1: <laughs> well, well I, I imagine like you, I, I, I was optimistic, and and I've become less optimistic. <laughs> um, I when um, when when President Obama was was elected, um, I was astonished. I didn't think I'd see a Black American president in my lifetime, and I I wrote to a friend sent an email to a friend who, who's American and said, I'm sorry, I've underestimated Americans. And then in 2013, <laughs> I thought, maybe
0: I didn't. <laughs> I was going to say, I was going to say, no, you didn't. <laughs> no, you
1: didn't. <laughs> now, we've seen something very similar here. Um, we, we, you know, I used to say that, um, okay, not lots of things have, have not improved in my lifetime, but you don't hear the same degree of open racism you used to when I was growing up um, and, and for that matter people's attitudes to gay people had, had improved as well you know right um well following Brexit it's all come back it was it was just there under the surface um it's really shocking close friends who have had an awful time with abuse when are you leaving you know really um you, you know basically we're out of Europe now had, hadn't you better be going um, and a lot worse than that. Um, so how much progress we've made with it? I don't know. I think we do need, I think we don't have to completely remake the world for things to improve. Even some, some movement in the right direction makes a difference. I think the place that you start is around, um, is around inequality um, because I think inequality is relatively easy to tackle. We have worsened inequality, both in the United States and in, and in uh, the UK, as an economic tool. We've used inequality as an economic tool. That, that doesn't have to be that way. It seems to me likely that in the recovery from the pandemic, governments are going to have no option but to go back to the kind of um, uh, economic policies indeed you saw under Roosevelt and we saw in the post-war period here, um, where h- rather higher rates of taxation had to be tolerated, uh, where investment had to be made, where y- y- you economically kept um, unemployment under control, health improved, um, a whole range of social indices l- looked much better. Um, I think, how do you rid the world of racism um, well, the, the evidence is that actually, despite everything, in the UK, particularly younger people are significantly less racist than, their, than, than previous generations were. And the, we know that in the UK, the big factor that's associated with, um, with less racism is, is, is people having black members of their family. So it's, it's relationships that make the difference. Mm. Um, and and that's happening. And, that and we are seeing that more and more. So even uh, Liverpool was a very, very segregated city when I first started working there in 1988. And gradually, gradually, that's changed a bit. And gradually, you, you're seeing less, uh, less racism. It hasn't gone away. It's by no means gone away. Um, but it did improve. Um, or has improved. And so I think we have to hang on to the hope that we've got. I don't think we, we must be despairing. I think we have to bear in mind that at the end of the day, Trump was voted out. Um, you know. He was. Despite what he says, he was. <laughs> um, and yeah, okay. So we, I guess we all know where the big problems are more clearly now than we did. Um, but I think, and there's a, the, the other thing that I think that is evident is that um, I think even white... I think white liberals have come to understand the nature of racism much better. Mm. So I think, you know, I think people used to take the attitude, well, you know, slavery, it was a long time ago, and I wasn't there. Um, and actually beginning to understand that that legacy is still very alive, mm. that, it's, that it's not some ancient history thing. It's actually very alive... in the the way the world is right now. That begins to make a difference. And I think people are beginning to understand black perspectives better. They say, I'm not saying everything's hunky-dory. It really isn't. But I don't believe that things are completely gloomy and doom-ridden. And And certainly, when I look at my kids and their friends, um, their attitudes are are much better than some of the attitudes amongst my peer group. Um, And I've, you know... We, we had family members that were racist. And I can't. And I, I, now I can honestly say I haven't got any family members that are racist. So, you know, the times change.
0: Good, good. Uh, I've always viewed uh, racism as a vehicle of capitalism. Uh, you talk about, you know, uh, getting rid of inequality. Uh, What's your thoughts about that? In order to, I mean, people are capitalizing on the poor, uh, in, in, whether it was slavery, whether it's low minimum wages, somebody has to do this work. Somebody has to go into the mine and get this, get the, the product somebody has to be exploited essentially. Whether it's uh, you know a Walmart, I don't know if you have similar things in in the UK. There, uh, you know, Walmart uh, workers, you know, are paying a minimum and low wages, and the rich get richer and the poor get poor, and they're exploiting particularly black and brown communities.
1: Um, I think that's true. I think that um, so I think the origin of modern racism um, is 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 very much around. Uh, the, the early stages of developing capitalism and finding very, very cheap labour. Mm. And, then, and then slavery becomes not so good as it becomes evident that if you have workers aren't getting paid anything, they won't buy anything. And capitalism needs, needs workers who can purchase as well as be exploited for their, for their labour. But, but the big legacy of the British, of course, is that the way it kept people under control was divide and rule. And therefore, there's another dimension to racism that says, oh, well, we've got these kind of gradations of, of, of worth of person. And if we can split you two against each other. So, you know, the, the, the way the, the British um, managed almost everywhere they went, almost everywhere. You got to give them credit; they were doing very well, good. They were very consistent. I mean, you know, if, if they they go to India, there are there are Hindu um, bits of India, there 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 are Muslim bits of India. They kind of uh, they deposed the Mughal Empire. Empire. They, they they set up um, puppet regimes and set people against each other. Um, and 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 that's how they and that's how a small number. Never a massive garrison of, of, of British soldiers managed to ma- manage to control a huge subcontinent the size of of, 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 the, of the British Raj. Um, they did something similar in the Middle East. It, it, it's all over the place. They, it, this is this is how uh, Ireland, of course, is another is another example, um, and that then perpetuates racism. But it's 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 just keep keep divisions rolling. Now the extent to which they did that as a conscious Deploy, or whether it was simply a systemic um an available thing in the system that that, that was then became prominent I, I don't think makes much difference i think that it certainly keeps people apart and it and at the end of the day interestingly it serves the people who've got the most resources <laughs> and so then i think undoubtedly then functionally you can cannot deny that 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 all this all this racism we see here this xenophobia where it, people are, are um, want people of Asian heritage to go away. They want Europe, recent European migrants to go away. Um, uh, it, it, at the end of the day, the people it really serves are the people who are controlling everything and hold all the money. It, it keeps us squabbling amongst ourselves.
0: Uh, I don't disagree with that at all. I don't disagree with that at all. Do you ever bring any of your research to the public uh, to the government officials to say, "Hey, listen, here's a reason to do this because you'd be saving lives." Too.
1: Um, yeah, well, we do actually, and and um, certainly, um, politicians, of course, are not that easy to influence, um, and you get, and you have your most traction when there's kind of an open door. So um, you, you, you may, may not know we've got a semi a semi autonomous government in, in Wales. It's, it, 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 we're still part of the United Kingdom, but but the health service, for example, uh, and education are under are under the control of of, of the uh, the Welsh the Welsh government, and um, the first minister at the moment is um, a guy called um, Mark Drakeford. Um, so he's that's like you know the prime minister, and um, who I who was previously the minister of health, and, and, and in a role, I had a, a role with with the Royal College of Psychiatrists, which is our national psychiatrist organisation, um, and that meant I used to meet with, with Mark Drakeford when he was minister of health, and, and Mark Drakeford um, is is a man who understands um, uh, the. Uh, the effects of the health of the social determinants of health, and insofar as he has the autonomy to take action on it, does I believe make makes efforts to act on it? Um, so you can influence policy, but of course, that doesn't apply to the Westminster government who've got control over some very important things. So, um, one of the a, another area that I've been involved in has, has been about alcohol um, and alcohol. Um, alcohol, we have in the UK uh, pretty much a public health disaster around alcohol. Alcohol has got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. The, the, the UK government has reduced taxation and duty on, on alcohol steadily um, for a very long time, since, since about 1980. Um, and so alcohol has become relatively cheaper. And, and the cheaper alcohol is, the more it gets consumed. And the more it gets consumed the more the population's health suffers. And it isn't just heavy drinkers whose health suffers, a wide range of people's health suffer. There's no safe safe limit of of consuming alcohol uh, any more than there's a safe limit for smoking cigarettes. I'm not, you know, I I take alcohol, but but the fact is that the more alcohol is consumed, um, uh, the the more the population's health suffers. Um, Now we have very, we had, for, have had for some time very good evidence that if you if you um, create a minimum unit price for alcohol, um, then the cheapest forms of alcohol, um, which are consumed by the heaviest drinkers, the consumption of those drinks reduces. And, and using a minimum unit price for alcohol uh, can be could be for modelling exercises could be reasonably anticipated to have a major effect on public health. Um, surprisingly the conservative government of 2000 well, the coalition government of 2010 was persuaded of this uh, and had a policy to introduce minimum unit pricing the alcohol industry which is very powerful and has got powerful lobbies um, persuaded the government to change its mind but it it's gone ahead in Scotland and it's and it's and it's going ahead in in Wales and in Scotland we now have effectively um, quasi-experimental data um, showing that actually introducing minimum unit pricing has exactly the effect that was modelled. It has reduced um, um, uh, health. You present this evidence to a government that's very influenced by in- in- industrial lobbying, they know perfectly well that minimum unit pricing has, a, has, a, has an impact on public health, but they, they change the kind of the um, um, the narrative the narrative becomes it's about choice we want people to be responsible Um, whereas if you really want to influence um public health you have to take public health measures and that that includes the availability of alcohol as a toxin so sometimes you push at an open door sometimes you you think the door is open it closes in front of you but we move forward slowly and the fact is over time you do see more public health measures introduced you know, the great thing that improved the health of the nation in the UK in the 19th century was sanitation. Because that then rid us of epidemics of fatal illnesses that that were, uh, arose from from consuming um, contaminated water. So the urban populations um, benefited hugely by an investment in public works. People did it. The governments did it, you could see it as philanthropic, you could see it as self-interested because it meant that their workers were fitter um, <laughs> and didn't go off and die. Um, but but the fact is that that's the kind of thing that makes a big difference over time. And it does happen eventually, but you just got to keep banging at the door. And that's what that's basically what people like me do. You know, the, the, the elderly guys who've been around for years and managed to get the ear of policymakers that's what you have to keep doing. And I'm, I'm I'm a bore. You may have noticed yourselves, but I mean, um, certainly I've been going on about social determinants of, of, of mental health for some considerable time. The interesting thing is that at least as far as my profession, it appears that this people are are beginning to, um, take this on board in a much bigger way than they were previously, not because of me in particular, but because that people see the same evidence that I've seen. Um, and, be, and become convinced that we can actually do something about this. And it's not impossible.
0: Well, listen, I appreciate all your work and efforts. I, I, I give you a lot of credit for your stance on racism, your stance in trying to understand the suicidal epidemic or, uh, that's going on in South uh, Asia, as well as, the, you know, the rest of the world there. And I appreciate that. I, I, I wish that more people felt like you and, and, and adopted your your stance and had your passion for, for the things that you're doing. I applaud you on that. Um, I'm going to let you go because I know that you've had a long, long day. It's uh, getting late there in the the UK there. So I really, really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, I would just say, keep up the good work. I I, I wish you the best of luck in your endeavors and uh, just keep going, you know, Um, just keep going. And I know it's, I know it's gotta be hard and you're, Beating your head against the wall sometimes because you want the, the the politicians to listen. And when you think they have your ear, then here comes some slick talking lobbyists and, and and talks them out of the, all of these uh, you know measures that we know. And I agree, would save people's lives. But that unfortunately doesn't matter as long as the bottom line is we need some more money. So it's really terrible. It's really terrible. So. Well, thank you very much for inviting me on your podcast. I I appreciate that. Absolutely, anytime, anytime. I'd like to have you back at some point. So. All right. Take care. Back for now. Police reform is more than just a trending topic. My name is Lawrence Hunter. I'm a retired police captain from the state of Connecticut, and I've written a new book called police reform. And I talk about the evolution of law enforcement here in America and what changes need to be made in order to improve the relationship between the police and the communities that they serve. Over the past few months, it has become increasingly more important and more evident that there's something amiss and awry between the police and the communities that they serve. So whether you're about defunding the police or defending the police, if you're about Blue Lives Matter or Black Lives Matter, no matter what side of the fence you happen to sit on, make sure that you pick up your copy of Police Perform today.